This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, this is a pretty notable week. Not because we're back after missing last week. Not because we don't have Rick today, which we don't because he's in where? Michigan, Ron? Michigan? Yeah. Not because of the 75th anniversary of D-Day either, so that day is always special. Nope. This is a week that was because, yes, James Holzhauer lost in jeopardy. True story. After 32 wins and $2.4 million in earnings, I think it was 2.46. Anyway, he finally lost. And not because he blew the last question, because he didn't, he got it right, but because he absolutely went against type and bet almost nothing. Ron, you want to explain that one to me? Well, it looked like he lost his nerve a little bit or, or maybe just wanted to go on vacation and he was burned out. Uh, by the way, you can afford a vacation now wherever you'd like to go. But looked to me like he uh, uh, outsmarted himself. You know, he yeah. overplayed his hand. I think he didn't think that uh, uh, anyone else was going to get the answer right. And look how smart I can be. I can just bet $1 and win. And it turned out not so fast, mister. <laughs> well, what football event would you compare this to, Ron? I always ask you about that. But my first thought was like Jets 16, Colts 7, and Super Bowl 3. Uh, but instead of James Holzhauer, you know, playing it safe on that last question, we had Earl Morrill, as you remember, playing it safe on the last play of the first half, throwing the ball to Jerry Hill over the middle instead of, yep, Jimmy Orr, who, by the way, probably is still waving his hands in the end zone. <laughs> in some end zone somewhere. Actually, it reminded me of uh, Pete Carroll not follow, following his season-long pattern and giving the ball to Marshawn Lynch on the goal line to go beast mode. Oh, that's a good one. Super yeah, Bowl 49. Right. He ended up just like a loser. A loser. <laughs> well, maybe we can get James Holzhauer on here to talk about it. <laughs> maybe. Well, for the moment, however, we have others, uh, like former Baltimore coach Brian Billick. He's going to be here. He was just named to the Ravens' Ring of Honor. We're also going to have Denver wide receiver Emmanuel Sanders on uh, running a big event in Denver this week for the Emmanuel Sanders Foundation. We're also going to hear from Tampa's Ira Kaufman, a Hall of Fame voter, as he tries his hand, or I guess his voice, at co-hosting. He's going to sub for you, Ron, and I guess you're no. leaving midway. Yeah, yeah, your son's got a sax concert or something. He does. he got to play. He's, a, he's the Coltrane of his, of his uh, middle school. <laughs> Better hope so. I'd love to hear that. But anyway, I can't wait to hear Ira give it a shot in your place, Ron. And we won't have long to wait. He and a lot more are coming up. So don't budge. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, it's the end of two eras. First, as I mentioned earlier, James Holzhauer is no longer the Jeopardy champ. He was beaten Monday by a Chicago librarian, who I think graduated from Princeton. Anyway, he was beaten. And second, Joe Horgan is gone as executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Now, Holzhauer's reign lasted 32 games. James, Joe's reign lasted 42 years. And Ron, first question to you. We're in a business where winners and losers are constantly judged. So judge this one for me. I asked you about James Holzhauer in the earlier segment. Right. Did he tank? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he. Uh, I think it was the opposite. I think he got cocky, and he assumed uh, the librarian would blow it in the end, and he'd prove how smart he is by... Uh, uh, reading the situation and winning by the closest margin, betting only a buck uh, when he usually places big bets. But every contestant uh, got it right, I believe. I did not, but they did. Classic yeah. poker player's mistake, overplaying your hand. 
let's agree to disagree on this one. I think he kicked it to the curb and said, enough's enough. And anyway, <laughs> it was a great run. Really enjoyed it. But uh, that leads me now to Joe Horrigan, who walked away as executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame after 42 years, as I mentioned. His last day was last Friday, and I spoke to him that afternoon. Uh, he was driving on his way home. He was escorted earlier to his car by CEO and President David, what's his nickname, Ron? Big Country. Big Country Baker. And the two were greeted in the parking lot, Joe said, by some passerby who congratulated them for all they do for the Hall. As Joe said, it was almost like something straight out of the Hall of Fame's handbook where it talked about honoring the heroes of the game and preserving its history. But for Joe, Ron, I I think it was absolutely appropriate to be congratulated that way. Well, yeah, and it was good that he was walked out by Big Country and not two guys from security like usually happens when you leave a job. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Usually they change the locks after that. Yeah, you take your key card, and that's it. You can't even get your clean out your desk. But uh, uh, Joe, as you know, uh, really dedicated most of his professional life uh, to the Hall of Fame, yep. the history of the NFL, uh, and pro football in general. Uh, he, he's seen the place grow from really a mom-and-pop shop, which is what it was at the start, into a major uh, tourist attraction and a place where everyone who loves pro football uh, talks about now pretty regularly. Uh, you could say, in a way, uh, that Joe is the reason we're here to talk uh, at Talk of Fame Network. Because what yeah, are we no, talking right. about? You're right. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's funny. I asked him, what are you going to do next? He said, well, I'm going on a week's vacation with my wife. And I said, a week? How about a month? How about a year? I mean, after given 42 years to Canton, she deserves something. But um, I, I, I saw what John Madden said last week, and I thought it was pretty interesting. He said, there's no one anywhere knows as much about the NFL, and it's 100 years, as Joe Oregon. And as you know, and everybody who's close to him knows, Ron, he's right. I mean, Joe isn't so much an historian as I think he really is a treasure in the hall always, always was in good hands with him there. Yeah, certainly so. I mean, Joe knows the minutiae behind the Hall of Fame, uh, behind each of the Hall of Famers. Uh, he knows the stories that swirl around uh, every team, going back to the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. And, uh, and fortunately, you know, he'll still be around, as I understand it, as a resource for the Hall. And right. for guys like us, we have questions, he'll have the answer. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't agree more with you on Joe. And Joe, Joe Oregon, we're going to miss you. We will. But as Ron says, hope we see you down the road. But do as well with the next 42 years as you've done with these, because you did just fine. Speaking to all, that's the signal that our Ron Borges, yes, Ron is here. Rick's not. Our Ron Borges is about to make all the fame case for his man. Your man, Otis, my man, Anderson, whom you wrote about this week on our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com. Ronnie, let's hear it. Take it away. Well, you know, Otis Anderson is the name that comes up a lot, uh, uh, you know, and uh, why is he in the hall and so forth and so on. Uh, and I can see why. When Otis Anderson retired in 1993, he ranked seventh all-time in rushing touchdowns with 81, and his 10,270 rushing yards uh, was eighth uh, on the NFL's all-time list. Uh, this seemingly tireless workhorse is one of only 10 players to have rushed for 10,000 yards or more in the then 73-year history of the NFL. Yet, inexplicably, his name has never once been so much as a Hall of Fame semifinalist over the past 26 years. Now, some facts of football life are inexplicable. The disappearance of any memory of Otis Anderson is one of them. St. Louis Cardinals made Anderson the eighth overall pick in the 1969 draft, a 79 draft rather, and his impact on the Cardinals and pro football was shockingly immediate. Facing the defending NFC champion Dallas Cowboys in the first NFL game of his career on September 2, 1979, Otis Anderson rushed for 193 yards on only 21 carries, missing the all-time debut record set by Alan O'Horse Amici in 1955 by a single yard. 
He averaged 9.1 yards, uh, 9.19 yards per rush that day, and he scored on a 76-yard uh, touchdown run, both of which were warning shots of the explosiveness to come. By season's end, he had run for over 100 yards nine times and finished third in rushing with 1,605 yards while scoring nearly a third of the lowly Cardinals' total touchdowns. Those numbers would make him an instant All-Pro and 1979 NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year. Despite carrying a withering load of 372 total touches, Otis Anderson had just begun. He would rush for over 1,000 yards in five of his first six seasons, the only exception being the strike-shortened 1982 year when he would play only eight games. Had the league not been shut down, he was on pace to rush for 1,174 yards after piling up 587 in those eight games. Predictably, he wore out after those six run-laden seasons. After carrying 1,690 times during that stretch, an average of 281 carries a season, his body rebelled. In 1985, he had rushed for 1,174 yards, but the following season, the battering he'd taken limited him to just nine games and 117 carries. Thinking him damaged goods, the Cardinals traded him to the Giants for two draft picks a month into the 86 season, and for the next two and a half years, he was little more than a serviceable baggage carrier for Joe Morris. But when Morris was slowed by injuries in 1989, Giants head coach Bill Parcells gave the ball to a well-rested 32-year-old workhorse, and Otis Anderson became the oldest back to rush for 1,000 yards in a season, piling up 1,023 yards and scoring 14 rushing touchdowns. It was like he'd climbed into a time machine. A year later, he shared the load with rookie number one pick Rodney Hampton, but still carried 225 times for 784 yards and 11 touchdowns. Then Hampton injured his shin in the playoffs, and Otis went in and ran for 80 yards against the Bears in the divisional playoffs, and two weeks later would have his crowning moment. On January 27, 1991, the Giants would defeat the heavily favored Buffalo Bills 20-19, and the key element was the clock-killing ball control offense provided by Otis Anderson, who was named Super Bowl 25 MVP after rushing for 102 yards and a touchdown on 21 carries. His teammate Leonard Marshall said, It was like James Brown reappearing at the Apollo Theater. Everybody thought he couldn't do it, but he made his comeback. The guy is steadily rolling on. Well, he rolled on for two more seasons as a backup before retiring in 1993. And when he did, Bill Parcells, who throws compliments around like the manhole covers, said, quote, Send him to Canton. He has too many pelts on the wall. Well, he's still got those pelts on the wall, but they haven't yet been enough to get him a bust in Canton. But the numbers, they speak for themselves. Okay, Ronnie, I want you to speak for yourself. You have one ticket to ride here. Yes. James Brown reappearing at the Apollo or Otis going to Canton? <laughs> I love James Brown. <laughs> I know you with... love his James Brown. <laughs> but I'm going with Otis, my man, Anderson, riding him to Canton like the workhorse that he was. You know, he became, he was two different backs. Early in his career, he was speed and power, could hit the edge and be gone. Late in his career, having been beaten down with all those carries and the punishment that he took, he turned into an inside-the-tackle, power-running workhorse, and he was a 1,000-yard rusher in both cases. Take him to camp. And James Brown should come and sing it there. The godfather of soul, man. Okay, another question for you. I did a state your case on Tiki Barber a couple weeks ago. I think you probably remember it. Maybe sure. you don't. I do. <laughs> but frankly, his numbers, his numbers seem superior to, to Anderson's. So I guess my question is, why is there more support for Otis, even among Giants fans, than there is for Tiki? I mean, is it, is it a Super Bowl? Is it Tiki's comments about Eli and Coughlin? What? Well, I think it's a number of things. I, uh, I think uh, uh, Otis... Uh, was a was a season saver for uh, their team that won the Super Bowl, and he was the MVP in that Super Bowl game. Had he not been able to 
grind out those first downs and keep control of the ball. Uh, that's what really won the Giants the, uh, uh, that Super Bowl against Buffalo. So I think there's a lot of that. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, yeah, Tiki's numbers were slightly uh, higher for yards, but only by a couple hundred yards. Uh, but Otis had f- uh, nearly twice as many touchdowns. I think uh, 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 Barber rushed for 55, and he rushed for 81. Uh, and, and, and when he, Otis retired, he was eighth all-time in rushing, and Tiki Barber was nowhere near that. I mean, I, I think he was a superior uh, uh, player, frankly, and, and he and frankly, he bitched a lot less. <laughs> Scouts! Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron. And good luck with that. Up next, what's the deal with Tom Terrific? Ooh, yeah, Tom Terrific. We'll find out in just a minute. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, the Baltimore Ravens last week added two names to their ring of honor, and one of those persons is with us now. He's former coach Brian Billick, who won the Ravens' first Super Bowl, and who's the second winningest coach in franchise history. Brian, first of all, thanks for joining us again, and congratulations. Thank you very much. It was uh, it was greatly appreciated. Very much a surprise, but uh, very excited about it, and uh, can't wait to to see my name go up as a permanent fixture on that stadium. You know, it's been twenty years since I first come to Baltimore, and coaches' years are like dog years. You got to multiply them, right? So that's that's a long time. It's a long time. Well, Brian, speaking of that ring of honor, it has some pretty recognizable names on it. I know Unitas is there, Barry, guys at Braun, and I remember Lenny Moore, Art Donovan, Jim Parker, Art Modell, Ray Lewis, and Ed Reed are among them. Um, now it's you and Haloti Nada are going to join them, and you sort of referenced this just a few seconds ago, but how big a deal is this for you? You know, it's not something I really gave a lot of thought to. Uh, when Steve Bashotti called me a couple weeks ago and said they wanted to do this, I was it was humbling. I'm very appreciated. And I don't know that it really resonated until we actually had this ceremony. Holodi was re- came in and, and was going to retire as a Raven. He had a bunch of family there. There were a bunch of people. I saw Matt Stover and Michael McCrary and some of the other guys that uh, are in the ring of honor. And it wasn't until then that it kind of hit me that, yeah, this is, this is going to be pretty cool to be a part of that group group and you look up and you look at the names on it, not only the Ravens, but obviously all but relatively brief history of the Ravens, but still, it's been about 24, 25 years and some of the names. I mean, you're talking about Hall of Famers, Ray Lewis and, and uh, uh, Ed Reed and just really some really good players, but that tie into the old Colts as well, right. Johnny Unitas and, and that group, you know, it it really does uh, put, it, put it within context and uh, like I said, it's very, very humbling and very exciting for me. We my family, my wife Kim and I decided that, you know, we've stayed here in the Mid-Atlantic area. We're over here on the Chesapeake and, and absolutely love it. Never thought in a million years that uh, a kid from L.A. would retire here in the, uh, on the Eastern Shore. Uh, but we absolutely love it. And to be a part of that on a permanent basis, this is just very exciting. Well, you mentioned you were surprised when Steve Bashotti told you. I guess I'll ask you, how surprised were you? I mean, when he called, what did you think he was calling about, and what did you say when he told you? Well, I, you know, I really, like I said, it really wasn't a part of my thought process. I really didn't much think of it. I've always, you know, when you think of stuff like that, you think, well, that's for old guys, you know, and, and, and you realize, well, I'm a pretty old guy now. <laughs> um, but and, and Steve and Renee Bashotti, they were so gracious in doing this, and it underlined, you know, they asked uh, Haloti Nada, who was ultimately traded 
traded away from the Ravens. You know, there's a business side of it. And, and again, you know, to be honest with you, yeah, Ravens did fire me at one point. Let's remember that. But but that's the business side of it. And the tradition, the history, the family uh, mentality that comes in and out of the Ravens, why Lodi Nata wanted to retire as a Raven, is very, very real. And I couldn't be prouder to be a part of that. Well, Clark mentioned, of course, uh, Brian, your Super Bowl victory in Super Bowl 35 against the Giants. Uh, but that team, as you may recall, uh, was at 1.5-4, and four, and you were winning without a named quarterback. And again, Trent Delfer and, and, and Tony Banks. Uh, how difficult, not only was that season, but how difficult was that climb from 5-4 and four to uh, winning Super Bowl 35? Well, that was probably the most memorable thing, memorable thing about our Super Bowl run. Obviously, a dominating defense, uh, maybe the single season best defense in the history of the league, on a record that will never be broken. You know, every broken every record's going to be broken. That one will not. Uh, the all-time lowest scoring defense in the history of the league, for no other reason than obviously the changes and the rules and the like. So, even though every record is eventually going to be broken, broken, that is one that is not. And and everybody is part of it can be very proud of it. But the fact that we lost four out of five games, we went a month without scoring. That would have torn apart a lot of teams. But we had great veteran leadership, whether it was a Shannon Sharp and a Trent Dilfer and a Rod Woodson and, and, and Mark or, uh, uh, Rob Burnett and Michael McCrary and Peter Bowen. They, they, they stayed close through that. And a lot of teams wouldn't have. And I've long said, I don't know that that team would have gone on the 11-game winning streak and gone on and won Super Bowl 35 if we hadn't gone through that baptism of fire that gave those guys the confidence that, okay, you, you can throw anything you want at us. We've been through the worst of it, and we'll deal with it. Yeah, it's funny that team, uh, Brian, when I think about it, you know, there's a famous story about a Detroit team in the, in the 60s had tremendous defense with Alex Karras and Joe Schmidt and those guys and were terrible on our offense. And uh, one game, they intercepted a pass, and as they were walking off the field, Mill Plum was the quarterback for the Lions. And Karras grabbed him by the shirt and says, do you think you can hold him? <laughs> yeah, and that, and that can be a mentality. That's tough to fight through, but people forget offensively. We were second or third in the league in rushing. Uh, we led the league in turnover differential. So the one thing the offense didn't do was turn the ball over. We ran the ball very well and played to the strength of that defense. Now, if I remember, you forbade the players from talking about the players or the Super Bowl. Uh, instead, I think you were calling the Super Bowl uh, – Festivus Maximus uh, is what we all say here, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, who came up with that name, and, and why did you do it, and and it and why did it work? It was actually the playoffs, and we were we had we were close, and we knew we were a game or two away from securing a playoff spot. And the buzz around town was that. But I wanted these players to understand: look, you haven't earned the right to talk about yourself as a playoff team, and then not and you know kind of in the kangaroo court like in baseball. And I don't want to hear that word. Well, the unique thing was. This was before we were playing San Diego. I think we had two or three games left in the season. Well, the ticket manager comes to me and says, Brian, the league has told us we can begin selling playoff tickets. How do I sell playoff tickets if I can't fig- if I can't use the word playoff? I go, well, you better figure it out because this applies to you as well. So if you remember, that came out of a Seinfeld episode. You know, there was oh, a funny right. holiday they came up with, Festivus Maximus. So, they, you know, they took hold of that, and it was great fun. The city kind of took hold of it. The players did. And uh, it wasn't until we beat San Diego that we could take the, the P word, the playoff word, ban off, 
So we called it Festivus Maximus. It was great fun. <laughs> so maybe we should put Jerry Seinfeld up on the Ravens Ring of Honor, right? <laughs> we should. We should. You know, and I, had, and, and I had a chance to meet Jerry Seinfeld later on. He's not a big football fan. You know, as he says, it's hard to get behind, you know, any sports because you're just cheering for laundry. You know, because the players' names show, you know, in the dead A's business world, they move around so much and whatever. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was great fun. Added a different dimension to it and kind of served its purpose. Hey, Brian, we, we were talking about that season, your quarterback travails and how you went from Tony Banks to Trent Dilfer. But following that year, you went out and you, you got the best free agent quarterback on the market. The guy I knew because I covered him out in San Francisco when he was back up to Steve Young. And there was Elvis Gorbach, who at that point was playing for Kansas City but wasn't a restricted free agent. I know you won games with him. I know you won a playoff game with him, but you didn't win a Super Bowl. And then he retired after one season. I guess I, I'm wondering, why didn't it work? And why do you think Elvis retired after, I think he failed to renegotiate his contract, and I think the club released him. But why do you think yeah. he retired? He was only 31. No. The guy was only 31. Yeah, no. And, and Elvis was, uh, he was just that point in his career that he was ready to be done. It was a tough transition for him. A lot of pressure because, you know, we brought him in, and, and when you change quarterbacks from a Super Bowl winning team, and Trent Dilfer was perfect for the team before, you know, in, in, in a Super Bowl run. But we needed more dynamic play out of the quarterback position, particularly when it turned out in training camp, we lost Jamal Lewis. So that play great defense run the ball formula had changed, and we were going to have to throw the ball better. And people forget that we did go into the playoffs, and, and we won a playoff game. Um, and Elvis played brilliantly for us in terms of augmenting the fact that we didn't have the same level of running game. But I think he was just at that point, he had gone from San Francisco to Kansas City, and then he came to Baltimore, and I don't know that people really embraced him, and it wasn't his fault, but the fact that we didn't go to the Super Bowl, it became his fault. Uh, so I think that just added up to cumulative. It's like, you know what, I don't need this anymore. I'm going to go home and, and uh, enjoy life. Do you think there was just too much pressure on him? I think so. I think so. And Elvis was uh, was an emotional guy in that respect, in that regard. And I think it just after the, the career that he had, it was just kind of a bridge too far for me. Decided, no, nah, I've had enough. Now, as I recall, the next year, uh, 06, you had Steve McNair, uh, and it looked as if you were kind of posed for another, poised for another Super Bowl run. So you lost that playoff opener in Indy, uh, to the Colts. Uh, how disappointing was that, especially the way that game went and uh, and the fact that you looked poised to make a run? Yeah, it was huge. We went 13-3 and that year. We had the number one seed. Steve McNair had played brilliantly after coming over from Tennessee. Uh, we're playing great defense, and uh, um, and and really felt like we could follow up now and, and make that Super Bowl run. We were at home, um, and and Indianapolis, of course, went on to win the Super Bowl. They started to get hot. Uh, they got healthy on defense, uh, and we had a number of opportunities to win the game. Our defense played very well, held them the field goals. We were down in scoring position that could have won the game, and we threw in threw an interception. I mean, and and, and it happens that way, uh, but. It was very, very disappointing just because of the expectation. We had developed the pedigree as a champion. We had won a Super Bowl previously. We were playing great offense, uh, and, and it just didn't come together and lost the eventual Super Bowl winning champ. Should that team have won more championships than it did? Uh, you know, my, my dad, uh, my sainted dad, who's long gone now, but I always used to say, uh, uh, if you should have, you would have. Uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, should that team have uh, won at least one more Super Bowl in your mind? Well, yeah, and they eventually did, obviously. The, the lack of continuity at the quarterback position was a factor. It was a lot to ask our defense every year to, to – 
to break the all-time scoring record. Uh, we ran the ball, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Um, but the lack of stability at the quarterback position was probably the thing. And it wasn't until they got Joe Flacco and had been through that and kind of solidified that, uh, that they were able to come up with that second Super Bowl. So, yeah, it's a quarterback-driven league, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to have a Hall of Famer quarterback, but you have to have some stability there. I had to laugh when you said the Colts got healthy on defense again. They got Bob Sanders back. That's why they got him. Exactly right. Well, that's exactly who it was. You know, he had been gone pretty much the whole season. Came back in was such a dynamic player, uh, but uh, that allowed them to go on and, and uh, you know, springboard them to the win against Chicago for the Super Bowl. Hey, Brian, your record speaks for itself. Division championships, four playoff appearances, a Super Bowl. Yet you never coached again. Why? Well, you know, it was, I always say there's a different transition. I remember when I when I got out of coaching and, and went into broadcasting and was fully intending to come back to coaching. I remember Jimmy Johnson pulling me aside. I didn't know Jimmy that well. He was at Fox as well. So, look, Brian, I don't know you that well, but let me give you some unsolicited advice. Don't go back unless it's in your bones. You know, too many of us go back. And, and Jimmy said, I was one of them. I went back for the wrong reason. You go back for ego, you go back for money, it's the wrong reason. I had a pretty good first marriage uh, with Ozzie Newsom and the Ravens. I kind of knew what that looked like. And the opportunities that came my way for the first couple years afterwards really didn't seem to size up right for me. And I didn't want to make the mistake of just going back. And then there came a point where I was, you know, I enjoyed the life that I had. Uh, that we had developed uh, in the media that I was doing and uh, more free time to yourself. It is a grind. I always say that job will kill you. And if you can do without it, you, you're probably pretty smart in doing so. Yeah, I'm always shocked when guys come back, you know, once they've gone off and had uh, another life. I always say to myself, you know, what are you thinking? This is. Well, I've always said, though, you know, I tell you what, all I've been right now, I'm half the joke, the half the coach John Gruden is. So give me $50 million. Uh, I'll come back. Uh, fire me after one year. But, live, you know, you got to pay the, the contract guaranteed, and life would be good. Now, that I would do. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Now, you're living in the Baltimore area now, as you pointed out. Uh, you're close to John Harbaugh, as I understand it. Uh, what happens to the Ravens this year in, in a division uh, that most are, are suddenly conceding to Cleveland, of all people? Are you one of those guys on the Browns bandwagon? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting. Yes, I think the Browns are going to be very good. And I've been very critical of the Browns up to now. But they're in a division now with the change in Cincinnati, with the new coach, obviously what's going to happen in Pittsburgh with Al Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown and, and the sea change in Baltimore. I mean, they're in the Lamar Jackson era and they fully believe that they're going to be able to run the ball that way. They, they added uh, Mark Ingram. They're going to play really good defense, although they're in some transition there as well. So it's going to be interesting. Can Lamar Jackson first, we know, and Steve Bishotti said as much, Lamar Jackson can't run as much as he did last year. Well, if you diminish that, he's got to be a guy that can beat you from the pocket. That's what remains to be seen. So they're clearly in transition. Brian, we're out of time, but thanks so much. Really appreciate Glad it. Again. Congratulations. All right, guys. I appreciate it. Congratulations, Thank you. Brian. You got it. That's Brian Black, newest member of the Ravens Ring of Honor. Up next, Two Minute Drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we've come to the end of our first hour, so you know what that means. That's the two-minute two drill. Ron has it this week, and I'm flying solo. So, Ronnie, let's get started. Okay, Rich McKay says pass interference rules should be different on Hail Marys. Does that have a prayer of being approved? No. That's why it's called a Hail Mary. <laughs> McKay's rule passes. How many other penalties should have different applications on a game's final play? 
all of them. As Rick Gossens once told me, what's good for the goose is good for... Uh, never mind. <laughs> if players are contractually banned from certain activities because they are dangerous, should coaches be held to the same standard? Uh, not unless they plan to suit up. <laughs> or walk the sidelines in a boot. Uh, Mike Mayock says you can't have all Boy Scouts, as, as we know, on your roster after signing Richie Cognito. How many lunatics can you have? Well, as we discovered at the Talk of Fame Network, one is more than enough. <laughs> I won't ask who. Mark <laughs> Starr is the most efficient postseason passer in NFL history with a 104.8 quarterback rating and a 9-1 overall record. Tom, not so terrific? Or Tom who? Terrific! As in six Super Bowls, 30 playoff wins, and 10 straight division champions. That's who. Oh, God, division champions, please. Uh, Seattle is suing 2017 second-round pick Malik McDowell to get back nearly $800,000 of his signing bonus because of an off-season ATV accident that rendered him unable to play. Wasn't it a signing bonus, not a playing bonus? Yeah, but he signed to play. He didn't play. Period. <laughs> You're tough. Speaking of which, retired wide receiver Calvin Johnson says he will have nothing to do with the nothing to do with the Lions until they give him back the portion of his signing bonus they snatched when he retired. Who gets a signing bonus to retire? Uh, Frank Sinatra. Greatest <laughs> coach John Gruden says he's not in the relationship business. Well, is he in the winning business? Nope. Since winning the 2002 Super Bowl, he's 49 and 63. He's not Chucky Ron. He's yucky. That's the end of it. That's the end of our first hour, but don't go away. We have Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman joining us in the second hour, and we'll hear about a potential strike, 18-game schedule, and the Hall of Fame chances of John Lynch and Rondé Barber. That's coming up, so stay where you are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. Rick is not here today, but Ron is, for the moment at least. But he has to go with Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman taking his place. And Ron, I know it's not exactly news, but a week and a half ago we lost Green Bay quarterback Bart Starr. And because we were dark last week, we've been dark a lot, uh, we never had a chance to acknowledge one of the game's most successful and I think really most underrated quarterbacks. I mean, Bart was tough. He was determined. We both saw him. He was disciplined. And he was successful. I mean, man, was he successful. He went 9-0 and in playoff games after losing that 1960 NFL championship game in Philly. Yeah, and he also had the highest quarterback efficiency rating of any playoff quarterback in history. So uh, maybe he's the real GOAT. Uh, but if he was, he'd never tell anyone, and he would not try to trademark Bart the Beautiful. <laughs> What's your fondest memory of him, Ron? I mean, you know, I know you saw a lot. I might have too. I was a Colts fan. I saw a lot of him. What's your fondest memory? Uh, actually, it's the ice bowl game uh, when he came in the huddle at the end of the game and, co- and said, Brown right, 31 wedge on the final play of the ice bowl game against Dallas. It was supposed to be a fullback dive with the ball going to Chuck Mercine. Uh, right. Mercine may have gone to Yale, and uh, but the Alabama-educated Bard star was smart enough to know all my backs are slipping around. I ain't telling them squat. I'm just taking the ball myself and going behind Ken Bowman and Jerry Kramer. Touchdown, Packers! 
Touchdown. Speaking of mercy, remember when he leaped over the pile and he had did? his arms in the air? Yeah, he's he looking said, for the ball. <laughs> yeah, he's looking for the ball. Yeah, what happened? Ball. Um, as I mentioned, I was a Colts fan, Baltimore Colts fan, so I hated the Packers. I didn't care so much for their quarterback. But I tell you what, I respected the heck out of Bart Starr because I knew he could and he would do whatever it took to put them on top, put the Packers on top. What I don't get, though, Ron, is when all these quarterback ranks come out, and you see them all the time, he's not among the top ten. I don't know why, because all the guy did was win. Well, you're right, and that's exactly his problem. His stats don't really measure up to, you know, Johnny Unitas uh, or any of the modern-day uh, era quarterbacks, but his one-loss record was better than anyone's. Uh, something like Brady's situation today a little bit, but the hype is different, and so is the value that's put on winning. You know, Barstar won, but he wasn't a star. Uh, Brady Brady won, and he becomes the GOAT, although there are still a lot of people who will say Peyton or Favre or, or Aaron Rodgers yeah. is better than, than Brady. Maybe Barr is better than all of them. I don't know if he was the GOAT, but I know he was 9-0, and as you pointed out. That guy. Yeah, he was damn him. good. He was good. Um, anyway, we lost more than a quarterback when Bart Starr passed away, as Ron said. We lost one of the great American sports figures for the last 75 years. Rest in peace, Bart. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, before we get to Emmanuel Sanders, I want to welcome in Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman from Tampa and JoeBucksFan.com. Now, Ira is a long-term friend of ours, and he's here to pinch hit for Ron, who's off to see his son in a concert where he's playing, believe it or not, the saxophone. Now, Ira, first of all, thanks for being here. And second, (laughs) here's hoping Ron's son doesn't have the musical ability that his dad, so so we might have to audition him for one of those Geico commercials. You know, uh, Clark, uh, you know, Ron's been known to uh, provide some sweet music in that Hall of Fame room. You you know that. Uh, He he is masterful. And uh, you don't want to get on the wrong side of him in that room, uh, Clark. It did a nice job of getting Ty Law in this year. That was masterful. Absolutely. And uh, I hope his kid uh, tours and uh, and plays the Tampa area. But I want to tell you right now, the Gulf of Mexico, my friend, is 92 degrees. I'm not making that up. 92 <laughs> degrees when you want to go in for a nice, cool, refreshing stroll on the beach. Yeah, thanks for that. Well, anyway, also, Ira, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. And now let's get on to our next guest. Denver's Emmanuel Sanders is more than a terrific wide receiver. He's a successful community organizer and fundraiser. And this Wednesday, June 5th, he and his Denver Broncos teammates are going to host an arcade adventure to benefit the Emmanuel Sanders Foundation, which is a charitable organization whose mission is to provide children of trouble, financially troubled families the resources and support they can get to attain a better life. And Emmanuel, first of all, thank you for joining us. And second, can you tell me or us a little bit about the Emmanuel Sanders Foundation and how you got started? Yeah, so I started my foundation because um, just from my upbringing along, you know, I, I had people who pretty much paid for me uh, to play sports. Um, so, you know, I, I, when I started my foundation, I wanted to do something that was close to my heart, um, something that, you know, I could definitely understand. So, um, you know, we created the foundation to pretty much uh, sponsor kids who can't uh, pro- can't pay for sports equipment um, and, and things of that sort, you know, anything to try to get, you know, kids off the street or into sports, uh, because for me, I feel like sports teaches you so much, you know, it teaches you teamwork, it teaches you leadership, it teaches 
I understand that the community outreach program of the foundation is Emanuel's Lockers, something called Emanuel's Lockers, which are installed in schools throughout the Denver area, and apparently they're filled with sports equipment that those students need to participate in after-school programs. How, how did you or the foundation come up with that idea? Uh, it was just really, uh, so the, um, my team pretty much came up with the idea of Emanuel's Locker, and uh, when they brought it to me, I, I said it's perfect in, in terms of what we can do. Uh, the first, you know, school that we, we, we contacted was uh, uh, Middle School, which their whole sporting equipment, uh, their whole sporting sports uh, program was cut off, so we were able to provide them with spring equipment and stuff like that, uh, which, was, which was amazing uh, to, you know, bring back their, bring back their sports program. So Emmanuel's locker has definitely been positive in that aspect. Was that that was a successful venture then? Yeah, it worked out really well. Got a lot of positive feedback from that as well. Oh, let, let me, I guess, ask you sort of a basic question here. Why is the foundation so important to you? I mean, you're a pro football player. Um, you, you, you've got a, a great job that a lot of people envy you for. You're making a lot of money. You're high profile. You're a well-known person. But why is this so important to you, and how involved are you actually with the Emanuel Sanders Foundation? Uh, I'm, I'm really involved with it. Uh, all the decisions pretty much I finalize it, obviously. Uh, but I think just with, with my team alone, I think that we're all, we're basing around just trying to, you know, make the Denver community better. And I feel like we're doing that, you know. And so, therefore, you know, I'm happy with the outcome that's going on. Did you hear, do you get feedback from parents or from kids? Uh, no, not so much. Not so much that. But, um, you know, I, I, I never, you know, um, it, 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 I, I feel like when I'm at the event, um, that's when I, you know, obviously talk to the kids and get the feedback from there. But no, I don't have anyone, like, reach out to me, you know, to, give me feedback, but um, I, I know that just what we did at Beacon High School in terms of the Emmanuel Sanders lockers, um, you know, a lot of kids, uh, it was just amazing to do that because, you know, they it, even from the T-shirts that we provided these kids, um, you know, a lot of these kids, it was a very gang-related school in which, you know, it was very different, like, colors meant certain things, so a lot of kids gave the feedback to you know my team that wearing that T-shirt they felt a lot safer, um, and that kind of moved me a lot to even think of from that aspect. Did, did, does does part of this touch any experiences that you had growing up, either of your own or kids that you knew that you went? You know, I want to do anything I can to help somebody in that situation. If I ever get the chance. I want to do whatever I can to help a person in a situation either that I experienced or some of my friends experienced to get out of it. Of course, of course. That's that's the reason why I'm doing it. You know, I, I always said that I was going to do it. I knew in my heart I was going to do it. I just didn't know when the time was going to come. And You know, I, I've been fortunate enough and blessed enough to play in this league going on 10 years now. And so, uh, you know, in my eighth year in the league, that's when I started my foundation. And so to be able to, you know, I'm proud. I'm proud that I'm able to be able to do it. My grandma's proud that you know I'm doing it because it's just that's just how I was raised. You know, uh, you know whenever whenever you get an opportunity, you always try to pick somebody up. 
And so that, 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 that's just that's how I'm built. Well, I understand Wednesday's event is going to involve some high-intensity gaming. So two questions. A, how good are you at them? And B, who's the guy to beat on the Broncos? Who's the best gamer on the Broncos? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Chris Harris is good at games. Uh, I consider myself pretty good. It's going to be fun, though. I mean, I, obviously, it's old-school arcade games, so that's going to be pretty cool, you know, to bring back Pac-Man and Tetris and stuff like that and just, you know, have fun. You know, not not your traditional, you know, foundation event, you know, something different, something that's me. And so I'm looking forward to it to have all my teammates out and uh, the Denver community out and raising money for the cause. You guys going to have Pac-Man there? Uh, we better if we don't. This is a problem because that's that's one that's a legendary arcade game. Absolutely, <laughs> it just celebrated its 39th anniversary, and I was just wondering if any of the guys on your team remember what that's all about because it, it broke before almost all of them were born, including yourself. I mean, it was out when I was younger, but uh, I, I was old enough to play it, but you weren't even born. Thanks, Emmanuel. That was Denver wide receiver Emmanuel Sanders. And, Ira, you always love to see guys back in the community. I know you like seeing them give back to the community, and that's what's going on here with this foundation. But a uh, question for you. You much of an arcade guy? You play arcade? Do you play those games? Well, when I was in college, uh, beautiful Brooklyn College, uh, Clark, which was a commuter college, uh, classes ended at 3.15, and, and I was home at 3.45. Uh, so it, it was a little different than uh, most kids go through. I, uh, I, I used to uh, love those machines, um, you know, those pleasure machines that the Springsteen calls them, uh, and I was pretty good at it. There was a, there was a machine called High Hand. Uh, Clark, uh, I've been looking for it online. I'm willing to cough up uh, a buck fifty if somebody wants to sell that that uh, machine to me. Um, you know, you get hooked on these pinball machines too, uh, Clark, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm still got a Jones for it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned a pleasure machine, but I'm I'm really glad that Ron's not here. I think he's got a different version of a pleasure machine. We better we better clarify that in a future show. You better clarify that anyway. It sounds like a lot of fun what uh, Emmanuel Sanders is doing this week in the Denver area, and and for a good cause. And speaking of causes, Ira and I are going to dive into two of his favorite causes next. That'll be the Hall of Fame candidacies of Ronde Barber and John Lynch. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. We've got Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman with us, and he's been here, and we'll be here for the second half of the show. Pitch hitting for Ron, maybe Goose, too, I don't know, but uh, you should know Ira. He's from Tampa. He's been on the show before. He works for JoeBucksFan.com. And he has a tough job these days. And no, it's not doing those bag checks at Bush Gardens. I was down there this spring. That's a, that's a long line. It's a tough job. But he's the guy in charge of making the Hall of Fame cases for two Tampa Bay Bucks this year. And I've been in the room when he's spoken before, and there is no one, and I mean no one, I'd rather have make my case. And that said, Ira, you've got a tough job in the months, maybe the years ahead, and that's trying to convince voters to warm up to mention two candidates. Yeah, their defensive backs, John Lynch and or Ronnie Barber. And I want to start with John Lynch first. He's a six-time finalist, two-time top ten finalist. That's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that he's lost momentum recently. 
Kennedy's going in the wrong direction. He hasn't made the cut to 10 the last two years. Now, um, I, I can't imagine anything that's going to be said about him that hasn't been said before. So my question to you is this. How do you resuscitate his candidacy now? Clark, I'm going to speak very personally on this topic, and you know what I'm about to tell you. Look, I got on in, in 2005 on this August committee, a um, bunch of great people around the room. I, I didn't make my first speech till 2011, uh, which was Ed Sable, um, a 95-year-old um, you know, founder of NFL Films who had one shot to get into Canton. That's a lot of pressure, and I had never given a presentation. Well, he got in. Two years later, Warren Sapp came around, and a little bit of a surprise, he got in his first year of eligibility. The next year, Derek Brooks, uh, who was a snap, and so, and Dungey a couple of years after that. So, you know, I got a little spoiled, Clark. Uh, I'm speaking very personally here. I got a little spoiled, and, you know, I thought I had all the answers to this process. And then John Lynch came along, and... I didn't think he was going to get in his first year of eligibility. It didn't happen. Well, now it's come along six times in a row. Mark, it it gets very frustrating. I saw Mike Sando today, an excellent representative of ESPN. He's he's been pushing Steve Hutchinson twice. He's very frustrated, um, Clark, and he doesn't understand what's going on with, with Hutchinson's candidacy. Well, here's John Lynch, as you mentioned I've given, you know, five different speeches. I wrote out the speech this year. I wasn't able to go to Canton, but I wrote it out, and Shereen read it, uh, Shereen Williams. That didn't work. Uh, you change your speech every year. What doesn't change are his numbers, Clark. He's got 26 picks. He's not going to have 29, uh, you know, next year in Miami. Uh, he, he's done. Uh, what he does as general manager of 49ers, Clark, doesn't matter, should not matter. Hope it doesn't matter. Uh, good or bad, shouldn't matter. No no impact. So here comes John Lynch. He could be the third member of a Buck defense. That was the best of its time. Clark, this isn't the, the 2000 Ravens uh, who couldn't sustain it. The 85 Bears who couldn't sustain it. Great defense for six, seven, eight years. That's an eternity by NFL standards. It's very frustrating Every year, I got to talk to Lynch. I got to keep his spirits up. He's wondering what's going on. The Bucks are starting to get more aggressive about his candidacy. They can only do so much, Clark. Okay. And last year, you know, he ran into a buzzsaw with, with Champ Bailey, Ty Law. This year, Troy Palomalu, a direct competitor. Right. And Clark, uh, you didn't want to say this because you don't want me to uh, get off the phone, but. Um, it appears Steve Atwater at this point. Well, that's what I was, I mean, Ira, that's what I was going to mention. The tough part of this is the competition he has at his position. I mean, three years ago, he was the safety du jour. He was. Then Brian Dawkins came along. Then yeah. Ed Reed came along. And then Steve Atwater passed him in the queue this year. And Atwater's been a finalist only twice. Now, with Troy Palomalo and Atwater likely finalists for 2020, I, I honestly, I don't know what John Lynch's chances of making the final 10 are again. I just don't know. And here's my biggest fear, Clark, and you've seen it happen in the room. I've talked to uh, Rick Gonzalez about this. You know, I looked up this, this, this little fact book that the uh, Hall of Fame gives out. Uh, yep. It's got all kinds of information. And I started to look up, you know, who's been in the room five, six, seven times, 
in a row and and doesn't end up with a bust in Canton because I figured, well, at least I can keep Lynch's spirits up by saying, you're going to get in. You'll eventually get in. History tells us that. Well, I found a guy. His name's Bob Kuchenberg, Clark. Kuchenberg, a, a, a great guard for the uh, fantastic Dolphin teams of the early 70s that almost three-peated, except for the Sea of Hands. Durable, smart. Now he played with Larry Little, uh, you know, and Jim Langer. Uh, those two guys are in. Kuchenberg, Clark, six, seven, eight years in a row. He's in the room. All of a sudden, year nine, he drops out, and he's never heard from again. That's right. And, That's right. and as we speak, he's not in Canton as we speak. You're right. And now he'll have to get in as a senior. I don't want that to happen to John Lynch, Clark, but as you suggest, uh, he doesn't have Hall of Fame numbers, and Clark, it's hard to sell intangibles in that room. And I agree with you, and I want to move on to Ronnie Barber, but let me ask you one last question here. What are the voters missing about John Lynch? What are they missing? Because, I mean, he's, I think he's what, in the Hall of Fame of two franchises, Denver and Tampa, and he's a nine-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro. What are they missing? I think what they're missing is how important he was to that defense. They, they right. know about Sapp. They know about Brooks. What is Lynch doing back there? Well, what he's doing is setting up the entire defense. For example, when they were going to play the Raiders in that Super Bowl and everybody made a big deal about uh, John Gruden knew all of uh, you know, the tendencies of Rich Gannon, who, who was the reigning MVP of the league that year, um, it was John Lynch who, who set that defense up the way Gruden wanted it. Uh, it was John Lynch who was telling Dexter Jackson that they were going to do this play and that play, uh, giving Dexter Jackson a huge uh, jump uh, on the snap, and he ends up being the MVP of the Super Bowl. That doesn't happen without John Lynch. So I think there's a little bit of a failure to recognize, Clark, that among these luminaries, these big personalities, Sapp and Brooks, it was Lynch who had the most responsibility in the best defense of its time. Okay, all right, let's move on to Rondé Barber. Uh, he's only one of two defensive backs, I think one of two people, period, in the 40-20 club. That's 40 more interceptions, 20 more sacks. The other, Charles Woodson. And let's be honest, he's probably going to be first battle Hall of Famer when he becomes eligible in 2021. Now, yep. Rondé's been eligible for two years, and he's been a semifinalist once. That was his first year, 2018. But last year, he didn't make the cut to 25. So what are the voters missing on Rondé Barber? Well, Clark, uh, I'm, I believe he's made the cut to 25 two years. He can't, he can't get to 15. He can't get, that's the problem. I think he made the 25. I can't get him over that final hurdle. Um, Clark, he is, he is going, he is the next entrant into the Bucks Ring of Honor. Just announced a couple of yeah, weeks that's ago. That's right, yes, right. Uh, so, so Bucks are trying to help him in that regard. It, it didn't, they tried it with John Lynch a couple of years ago with the timing. It, it made no impact in that room. Uh, even though Lynch is in two rings of honors. Uh, look, Clark, you can't have two more disparate candidates from the same defensive backfield than John Lynch and Rondé Barber. Here's what I mean. John Lynch, it's all about leadership and tangibles, things you can't touch or read it in a pamphlet. Rondé Barber, Clark, is a walking statistic. Yeah, he um, is. I've got them all. He, he really is. I dare say, you know, 25 or so defensive backs in Canton. Um, very, very few have his numbers. Um, his durability is off the charts. 
the most durable cornerback that's ever played in the National Football League. Played the last 200 games in a row. Doesn't mean he wasn't hurt. Never missed a game. Um, As you said, 40-20, he's got the signature moment in franchise history. The pick on Donovan McNabb late in that NFC title game shut down the vet. He was fantastic in in that game, you know. Um, He's got a Super Bowl ring. Uh, He's got a lot going for him. Uh, and I know your next question, baby, because I know you too well. What, what's holding Rondé Barber back? So you might as well ask me. Yeah, what's holding Rondé Barber back? <laughs> <laughs> uh, two words, system, corner. Um, I've heard it about Barber. You've heard it about Barber. It, it bothers me, when, and it bothers Rondé Barber, quite frankly, because I've talked to him about it. Um, you know, they say he played in the perfect system. He, he, he wasn't a guy that was going to shadow the other team's best receiver like a Deion Sanders. Well, I'll tell you this, Clark. For every tackle Deion made, this guy made 10. He's got over 1,000 stops. That's a big number for a cornerback. Uh, and a little guy, five foot ten, not a great athlete. Smart as a whip. I thought he was the smartest player in football. That included Peyton Manning, in my opinion. He was a film fanatic. He would bake quarterbacks. He, you know, he would fool quarterbacks. And um, this system, you know, knock, it, it's just not fair, Clark, because I don't know if you would agree with me, but you were there. And if Joe Montana and Steve, uh, uh, you know, Steve Young didn't come up under uh, Bill Walsh's auspices, I don't think they would be the quarterbacks they were. That was a beautiful system to play quarterback in. Yeah, that's right. But it didn't matter because they produced. It didn't matter. And Rondé Barber produced, and so John Lynch. Um, we've got about 30 seconds left here, but I want to ask you a tough question here. you got one vote. Who do you put in? You put in Barber or you put in Lynch? You know me. I'm a politician to my core, Mr. Judge. Uh, <laughs> Lynch, is, Lynch has been waiting longer. Uh, Lynch goes first. Barber goes second. Realistically, go, who do you think goes in for who? Who goes in first, Lynch or Barber? And do you think both of them get in? I think Lynch goes in first because Rondé uh, is having trouble getting in the room. You don't yeah. get in the room, you have zero chance. I think Lynch's day is coming, but it might be three years away. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but we've got to go to commercial. But uh, anyway, I'd like to talk a little bit more about. It. Stay where you are. We're going to be back with Ira Kaufman. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Um, before we get back to that conversation we had earlier, Ira, um, I, I've got a couple items I want to pass along. Uh, first, we'd like to congratulate quarterback and friend of the show, Carson Palmer, on becoming the 16th member of the Arizona Cardinals Ring of Honor. Now, Carson was named this week, and I'm sure Bruce Arians, who's now the coach in your hometown, that would be Tampa, I'm sure he would second that nomination. You know, Clark, the first big move Bruce Arians made when he inherited a 5-11 and Arizona team, 2013, first-time head coach, full-time head coach, is, is to get Carson Palmer. And it was a masterstroke. Uh, Palmer had had an okay career, decent career to that point. He blossomed uh, under the quarterback whisperer. Um, one year, I think he was a legitimate league MVP candidate. I believe it was 2015 uh, when they made the, uh, I believe, the NFC Championship game. Uh, got clobbered, got clobbered by Carolina 
uh, and it was not one of Palmer's better days, uh, but he was a very effective quarterback for Bruce Arians. He sure was, um, and, and a very good one. And anyway, congratulations to Carson Palmer, well-deserved. Um, but not so lucky, uh, not so lucky is Green Bay coach Matt LaFleur. It's the second item here. He just underwent surgery for a torn Achilles, suffered it in a pickup basketball game with other coaches and Green Bay coaches, and provokes the question, if players aren't supposed to indulge in risky off-season activities, should coaches? To which I say, absolutely. I mean, I haven't seen one suit up yet, and as Matt LaFleur said, you know, it's not going to affect anything. Other, of course, than his next basketball game. So, Ira, quickly on this, where, where do you stand on this with coaches? And You know, Clark, I'm with you. The only thing he hurt that day was his pride. That's, That's, right. That's right. Uh, and, and, you know, look, I'm out at the Bucks every day, 90-degree heat. Bruce Arians is 66. You know where he is? He's in a golf cart, Clark. He's in a golf right. cart watching OTAs and mandatory mini camps. And it's not because he's got a torn Achilles. Um, and LaFleur can do that. So to, to compare him to a player who's out of action because of an off-field injury, uh, absolute nonsense. Uh, he's probably embarrassed about it, Clark, but that's as far as it goes. Right. Okay. Um, I now want to get back to the conversation we had earlier. We were talking about Barber and John Lynch, uh, both Hall of Fame candidates. And, and there's something you were talking about how it, it bothers you that they can't get any traction here. And I'll tell you just in general what bothers Rick Ron and me is that um, there are others who get, to me, too much traction. I'm talking about those first ballot guys. I mean, eight of the last 15 people we put in, meaning eight of the 15 people in the last three years, over 50% of them, they're in the first year of eligibilities. And that concerns us because, you know, Ron once said, and I thought he was right, to be a first ballot choice, you've got to be a guy that says, you stand up, you go, Jim Brown, and then you sit down. That's it. There's no discussion. I mean, you just say, John Unitas, you sit down. And unfortunately, I think that changed in 2017 when Jason Taylor became a first ballot choice. I'm not trying to knock Jason Taylor. He belongs in the Hall of Fame, but... He wasn't even a first-team all-decade choice, and somehow he became a first-ballot guy, and now everyone's demanding to go in first-ballot, and when you hear someone talk about, like, Jason Whitford, first-ballot guy, first-ballot, they went first-ballot, and, and we're putting in uh, <laughs> more than 50% of them, and it, honestly, it, it sort of rankles some of the older guys, like the three of us and, and your, of our vintage, and, and I'm just wondering if it bothers you as well, because it seems to sort of cheapen the first-ballot designation if most people are getting first-ballot, you know, Clark, as usual, you, you, you're right on the mark here. Um, Jason Taylor might, might have been, uh, he, he might have been the dividing line. And uh, that 2017 class in retrospect, Clark, I didn't know it at the time. Um, that, that was John Lynch's moment. Uh, in that retrospect. was, right. That, that you're was right. the one. Um, because there was a lot of talk about, you know, we got to get some safeties in. So he had a little bit of that momentum going. Um, and all of a sudden, just when he was poised to get in, I believe, because I think he might have been, you know, the sixth or seventh guy in years past when, when only uh, a maximum of five, I, I thought it was his time. And that was the first year that all of a sudden this versatile safety from the Philadelphia Eagles got on the ballot. And he did. And what he did was he took enough votes away from yep. John Lynch uh, voters were undecided. I don't know which guy finished with more votes that year. We'll never know in 2017. Um, but Dawkins and, and Lynch went at it, much like right. some of these offensive linemen are, are going right. at it. 
Right. And they're siphoning votes from each other, Clark, and then all of a sudden, nobody, and I mean nobody, saw Jason Taylor emerging oh, that's in right. his Including first year. Including the guy who presented him. You know, the guy who presented Armando Salguero, he didn't see it either. He was stunned. He could have knocked him up with a feather. Um, and I, I think know, yeah, he, was I trying, he was just trying to lay the foundation for, for, he for was, Taylor. Exactly right, for, the coming, yeah. for the coming years. And, and, you know, I know people may say, yeah, well, I mean, who cares? You know, who cares? And, you know, I'll tell you who. The guy's waiting in line ahead of these people. You, you go to the grocery store, you stand in line for like, 15, 20 minutes, then some guy with $150 worth of groceries jumps the queue. You know what? You care, too. I mean, we have a lot of offensive linemen, as you mentioned, waiting who wonder, what about me? I mean, we have John Lynch there. We have Edgerrin James there. Those guys are penalized because Isaac we can't Bruce. wait. To- Isaac Bruce. Yep. Isaac Bruce. We can't wait to rush in guys who could wait. Two, three, or more years. But, Ira, nobody has patience anymore. They believe if they don't get in on their first try, and so do their fans, that somehow they've been disrespected. What's happened? What's gone wrong with this picture? Clark, uh, Clark do, you, do you think a compelling factor in this scenario uh, is, is maybe the changing age of the board? Could probably. It be? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, um, we, we have Kevin Green, who has the third most sacks in NFL history, right? Waited 12 years. Waited 12 years, and he was patient, didn't say anything. And I think a lot of those guys in there, um, you know, it, some of those guys, at least me, you, uh, Ron, Rick, we watched him, and we thought, okay, Kevin Green, yeah, we know he's got the numbers, but he's going to come along at his pace. And I know it was slower than he wanted, but he waited. But now, um, yeah, it just seems like, Maybe the younger guys just don't have that patience. I'm talking not only about the players, but maybe the writers, too. Just put them in the head of the class. You know, the first ballot, put them in. And, and I believe there's got to be a cue, and you respect the cue, unless you get that Montana, that Brown, that Jerry Rice, a guy who's head and shoulders above everyone else, Brett Favre. And I'll, I'll throw Ed Reed. I'll throw Ed Reed in that category. I will. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would, too. Yeah. I would, too. Remember when Ed Reed was presented last year and Scott Garceau? I said, Scott, you don't even need to make a presentation. He goes, I'd like to, but it was like two and a half minutes. And then there was no discussion because there didn't need to be any, you know? Um, anyway, uh, I, I just, I, I, it just, it, it drives me nuts um, because, you know, Clark, uh, maybe I, I I'm being I, selfish. Clark, maybe I'm being selfish. You tell me I'm, I'm a little too close to the situation, but. I, I, while Ed Reed falls in that category as a first timer, I'm I'm not sure Troy Palomalu does. I'm not sure. I, I'm that. not. I'm not either. And I had a discussion with uh, some of the Pittsburgh guys, Ed Bouchette in particular, about it, and he was aghast when I said that. He goes, Are "You kidding me?" And I said, "No, I, I, I'm not." But um, we'll find out what happens there. I mean, this is a wide open year. This to me is a year where people can go for it. I think of those offensive linemen I mentioned. There are three of them, but Sully Hutchinson and Fanica mentioned Edge, maybe. Uh, and Isaac Bruce, maybe someone like that. God, hopefully a guy like John Lynch. Maybe those guys can move forward. Because you look at that 2021 lineup, Ira, you can forget it. I mean, Peyton Manning's there, Woodson, Jared Allen, some others. It's going to be a backup again. Edron James is a heck of a candidate, Clark. Heck of he a is. candidate. Yeah, why has he waited so long? That's what I don't get, you know. And, and this is the first year he made the top ten. This is the first year. And I know 
he's not particularly happy about it. But hey, that's the way it goes, you know. Um, uh, did anyway, you, uh, did you just get a uh, did you just get a pamphlet in the mail about Roger Craig, Mister Judge? I did. I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah, but he's a senior candidate now. He's a senior candidate. That's right. That's right. Um, but I'm a Roger Craig believer. I cover that team. I believe in him. Rick and Ron aren't as high on him. I, I think the guy played fullback, halfback. He did it well in both uh, positions. Uh, he was a pro bowl in both positions, but he's incredibly invaluable back. But now that he's in the senior class, it's the great abyss, and who knows what happened. You mentioned Kuchenberg. He just disappeared once he went there. He just disappeared. Um, anyway, I were moving on. Speaking of 2021, I wanted to get to there because there was an interesting item. Uh, that appeared last week, and, and that's one that said D. Smith, who most people know is the executive director of the NFL Players Association, he's reportedly notified players to be prepared to sit out the 2021 season. Basically, he's telling them that the threat of a strike that year, it's real. Now, A, I believe the threat is real, but B, I will never, ever believe players will sit out a season. Reason? Like you, I watched them jump the picket lines in 1987, and that told me all I or NFL owners needed to know, and that's this. They missed the paychecks too much to have a collective walkout for more than a few weeks. And I don't begrudge them that. I understand that. But they're not going to hold out for a year. Do you agree? History, Clark, NFL history tells us clearly that in these situations, uh, the fat cats with the fat paychecks, that's the owners, right. tend to win. They do. Right. Um, particularly the last um, impasse. Uh, I right. think that was a lopsided win uh, for ownership. I'm not, a B, I'm not a big D. Smith supporter. Brock, I never have been. He talks a good game. He's come down to Tampa, made a couple of charges about particular players, never followed up on it. To me, he's a lot of bluster. Um, when it comes down to a showdown, Clark, I believe the NFL negotiators will uh, will, will do a job on D. Smith, and, and I think uh, the players uh, won't be well served uh, in, in the end. Well, you know, I, I agree with you, and I delivered that basically that same message to D. Smith and Matt Light at the 2011 NFLPA meetings. They were in Marco Island, Florida. Ron was there with me, and and uh, I remember telling Matt Light, um, you know. Um, we're going to see what happens here. He goes, we can hold out for you. I said, well, we'll see. But uh, look what happened. I mean, players rushed into a CBA, as you mentioned, that they later regretted. And the reason is they missed the paychecks. And look, as I said, I get it. You know, I would too. But don't tell me you're so strong that you're going to wait out owners because the owners, as you said, are the fat cats, and they've got deeper pockets. You know, there's so much money, Clark. Of course it's all about money, as it always is. But, Clark, there's so much of it. Uh, I believe uh, the uh, the NFL just went over $15 billion and suddenly, Clark, that uh, Roger Goodell uh, projection, which I believe was $25 billion, maybe by, what, 2025 or 2030? I can't remember. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Uh, it yeah. doesn't look that crazy, Clark. It doesn't, it doesn't look, look that crazy. crazy. Um, you know, the TV's about to be renegotiated. That's not going down. Um right. Salary cap rising at a very rapid rate, I believe 50% increase in the last six years. I'm not sure um, the players have a compelling issue at this point, Clark. Yeah, well, there's a compelling issue for the owners, and I'll mention that's the other item I wanted to get to. That's the 18-game schedule. I know it's always been a possibility. And now we've got Roger saying, you know, we really don't need four preseason games. 
which, <laughs> Ira, as you know, translated means we want to go to an 18-game schedule. Right. Um, right. First of all, I thought this league was concerned about player safety. Uh, how does extending the regular season make it safer for players? And second, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to give up something significant. So what are you going to give up? And to me, I think what the players should try to get is guaranteed contracts. You know, that, 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 that could be the big sticking point, the guarantee. And they always, you know, they always compare uh, the NFL to other sports in that regard and, and how guys don't have that job security. And, and it's a fair point. Uh, but you're right. Roger, one thing Goodell's not very good at it is keeping uh, his desires uh, of the owners, uh, you know, uh, secret. Uh, he, 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 he broadcasts them from a tower. And um, they're going to go to an 18-game schedule. They're going to go to That's an ivory tower. Season. <laughs> And, and it's going to happen sooner rather than later, Clark. Everybody knows it. Um, Clark, you, you and I are old enough to remember when they had six preseason games. Oh, boy. <laughs> right. Don't get into that. <laughs> I can almost remember that, some senior moments. But, yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Hey, Ira, thanks so much for your service. Really, really been a pleasure. Thanks for doing this. And guaranteed, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, buddy. You got it. That was Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman from Tampa. And this, this is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about out of time, so Robert, let's hear it. That means one of the two-minute drill again, and surprises, surprises, Ron is back as he's back to ask the question. That's commitment to excellence, Ron, if you know what I mean. Let's hear it. Uh, Panthers coach Ron Rivera says he didn't appreciate a fan taking a picture of Cam Newton passing at their facility because it was on private property. Does Rivera know the fans pay everyone's salary, including for the private property? Uh, no. He's riverboat Ron. Ron. Often up a river without a paddle. <laughs> Does a picture of Cam Newton passing in June give Panther opponents a competitive advantage in November? Or has Rivera just lost his mind? Uh, neither. Slow news day. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Roger Goodell says the Bills need a new stadium coach to remain competitive. They've had three winning seasons the last 19 years. Competitive with whom? University of Buffalo, home of Khalil Mack. <laughs> Rob Gronkowski reaffirmed this week that he's retired. So why won't people believe him? Because he's a patriot. I think you can understand that, Ron. <laughs> exactly. Goodell says the NFL doesn't need four preseason games. Do they need 18 regular season games? Only if all four are played in Asia. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, free agent wide receiver Adam Humphrey says he spurned the Patriots in favor of a four-year, $36 million deal with the Titans because Tom Brady isn't just the GOAT. He's an old GOAT. Is Tom not so terrific a salesman at 42? No, Tom didn't try to sell. Humphrey's just choked on his Adam's apple. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Amendola chose to wear number 12 this year in Detroit. Does he love an old GOAT in New England? Everybody loves an old goat in New England. Ron, you live there. You should know that. Yeah, that would be me. Uh, Russell, would be you. <laughs> Russell Wilson says he wants to play until he's 45. What are the odds of that? About the same as winning another Super Bowl. <laughs> why did the Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson, why did the, uh, the Ravens leave him in the dark about employing what he now calls a totally new offense? They didn't tell him until he showed up for the offseason workouts. Why? Uh, they were afraid he'd pass on it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, goodness. What is the most incredible feat? Saintly Tom Brady lasting 19, 19 years in the NFL or devilish Pac-Man Jones lasting 13? Pac-Man. Somehow he stayed one step ahead of the law. Terrell <laughs> <laughs> Davis said this week, we're seeing the beginning of the end of Rams running back Todd Gurley. He should know. After just four seasons, is Gurley out of gas? Nope. Just out of knee cartilage. 
That's the end of the game. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week, at this time, and in this station. Thanks for listening.